0: Hey, yo, happy Thursday morning. It's the Tropical MBA Podcast. This is the show where we talk about location-independent businesses. Speaking of location-independence, buddy, you're just bouncing all around. I'm right here. here. (laughs) Here I am. Here I am. Here you are. We're doing the podcast. We're doing the podcast. It's the best part of the week. It is. We just spent the last three hours stressing out about... Oh. Oh, that's going to make a good podcast. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't I don't like to talk too much about things that I can't talk about, but just wait till that one comes out. Do we out. need a lawyer? Do we need a line of credit? Do we need to go to this place? Wow, oh, I help, help. <laughs> 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 Typical entrepreneurship stuff, but it's great to be here on the podcast with you today and it's great to have our special guest Cam Collins who of course spoke at our event in Berlin, he sent us an email last week saying, "Hey guys, it's official. It's I've sold my business." Do you want to hear about it? Uh, Yeah, because we haven't (laughs) talked to too many people that have sold their businesses. I'm uh, infatuated with how to sell a business, what goes into it, all the different systems. Think about all the stuff you're going to hear today. I mean, we did a really deep dive with Cam, so we're going to talk about the difference between a strategic sale and a financial sale. We're going to talk about are business brokers really worth it? We're going to talk about something that terrifies entrepreneurs How and when do you get lawyers involved? Oh, I thought you were going to say getting your books in order for a sale. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Cam has a – and that is an important element of it. Cam has a business that uh, helps marinas manage their boat inventory. Which is kind of a cool business, and maybe boats and businesses have something in common. Uh, the the first and last day of boat ownership are the best two days. That's of a right. Boat owner, yeah. <laughs> might be the case with businesses too. All right, not so, all those trips out to the bay. Not the time where where your boat flooded. Not the time where the engine blew up and it cost you three grand. Right. It's the it's the time when uh, or you know you have to have a boat person too to manage these freaking things. I mean, it's a lot of work. Get that. Get to hire Cam software to come in and do all this stuff. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of work. So. It's nice to sell the thing and to get moving on. All right. So what do you say we get moving on to our interview with Cam to where we learn about how he sold his business? Let's do it. All right, Cam. So you know that I, I, I don't jump to get on Skype all the time to interview people. But when I heard about what you've been up to the last few months, I just had to uh, give you a call. So thank you so much for joining us on the Tropical MBA podcast.
1: Oh, man. Really glad to be here. And you know, I tell you, it was really, really great meet you and all the guys in uh, Berlin, and I was really, really bummed out that I couldn't be in, in Bangkok for the next big event, but we're going to talk about why I actually wasn't able to attend in person.
0: Yeah, not a bad reason, and hopefully at the next conference, <laughs> uh, you'll be able to teach us all what you learned. At, 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 in Berlin, you were talking about documentation and right. how me and you geeked out on these really boring, you know, we thought we were cool entrepreneurs. And then we implemented these systems, and it was really cool to hear your story there. And I hope that that'll come out just a little bit in this talk. But I'd like to, to just ratchet it back to the very beginning and talk about how you became the owner of a software company, how you went from in a job to owning a software company. And if you could start off just explaining what it is that your company does.
1: Yeah, uh, no worries at all. Actually, this is my second software company that uh, I've owned. Um, so I started off after getting out of being in a cube and doing software development. I actually uh, was able to hook up with a handful of venture-backed software startups, mostly Silicon Valley uh, startups. There was actually one uh, actually based in Boston, and I was able to kind of ride that stock option wave for a while. I was able to put a little bit of uh, money in the treasure trove, so to speak. And you know, I, I'm easily one of the oldest guys in the D.C. So I'm actually dating myself here. This is actually pre-dot-com era and and moving into the dot-com era. So um, I was the founder of a company called Lexington Software, sold that company to a firm called Interwoven right during the dot-com era, and it was just, it was cowboy days. I mean, you know, back then we were selling uh, shovels and uh, and, and pitchforks to everybody who wanted to build a website.
0: What does that mean, by the way? Can you take me back there just for a hot second? Because I don't even know what a business was in 1998, but I guess I saw this stuff happening around me and I was using the products. What does it mean that it was the cowboy days? Does it mean you could just go out and start a consulting firm and get a million bucks from somebody?
1: Well, it's so funny you say that because that is precisely what we did. Um, <laughs> Uh, we 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 it was uh, it was a couple of guys that I had worked with at a company called Atria Software and still I, I still have a huge fond memories of Atria. They wound up rolling up into Rational and eventually IBM bought Rational. But I was a, I ran the Southeast of that company as a sales rep and with the, the IPO and I was able to put a little bit of money in, in my pocket. By by way of the the IPO, so myself and a couple of guys from the Atria company started this consulting business, and it was man, it was literally oh man, was it 1998 that we started looking for venture money? I mean, we were a consulting company providing consulting services on version control software, and we actually got a company in Boston to give us a million dollars in VC. I mean, that you know that clearly would not happen today. Now. That VC company was hugely happy with their investment in us because we wound, we wound up selling that company to Interwoven, and we did a 100% stock deal, which you wouldn't consider doing today, but the deal was something in the order of we sold out all of our shares for like $0.25 cents a share, and the stock hit a high through the dot-com era of like $200 a share.
0: And were you able to get your money out of that deal? A fair amount. So so you're this consulting cowboy Taking other people's mm-hmm. software, implementing it, making a bunch of money, you sell the shares. What do you do with that money then when you're sitting there after the the sale?
1: Yeah. So what we did is, um, besides, so I went to work for Interwoven. Actually, for a couple of years, um, it was it was a, a great run for a while. And um, you know, it took the money, you know, you know, uh, bought a house, put put money in investments, and that kind of stuff. The, the the bad news side of that was this is also the year 2000, and I am a quote unquote technology guy, right? I know everything about technology, so I took a large portion of my investment uh, capital, the, the the winning, so to speak, from this IPO, and I plunged it right. Back Back into the stock market. So I still have, to this very day, um, my statement from March of 2000 from Merrill Lynch. And I look at it all the time because it was so unbelievably blown out of proportion, and half the companies I owned aren't even around anymore, companies like Enron and what have you, right? And and you're just thinking you're on top of the world. And I think I mentioned this in Berlin, but um, I had way too much money and way too little sense back then and I had no real good mentors to actually sit down and talk to and say hey you know shake me up and say hey this is the reality of what's what's happening you know don't get caught up in the hype of what you see on usa today or, or or what was hot back then you know yahoo and so i didn't do a good job of preserving a lot of that capital i preserved a fair amount but not a lot of it so what happened was in about uh, 2002 um i had met uh, who was my partner at the DocMaster company
0: DocMaster is the primary product for, for from your company exumatech is that right
1: that's That's the primary product, and uh, what that product does is it actually is a business management solution that we sell to uh, retailers in the marine industry. So we had bought this company in Florida. They were the dominant player at the time, and we still are today. And my partner and I had bought the company, and I ran the company day day, to day my partner was effectively the chairman and uh, actually the majority shareholder and I was a minority shareholder in the company and uh, effectively I ran that business for 11 years how did that
0: make you feel to have a guy drop a bunch of money into a deal and then chill out while you hustle every day how did you how did you manage to to be motivated for 11 years
1: I had a couple things uh, my ownership stake actually was still relatively large even though it wasn't a majority uh, and I also had some very Strong incentives to grow the business by way of a stock option package that I was afforded. Okay. So, but what's funny about that is, in some ways, that actually may have been more problematic than it was really good for the ultimate business. Now that I kind of look back over the whole thing, so we made a couple of mistakes. One of them was was the structure really wasn't probably the best structure to be had because of that. He was involved sort of like you know once a week or twice a week. Hey, you know, what do you think of this? I could bounce ideas off him and that kind of stuff. You know, but then he was in Aspen or, or, or Italy doing something else, which is great. He was a retired, successful business guy who had retired. So what I found myself doing was, when I took a real hard look at the business, is for the first seven years of being involved in this company, I kept trying to find ways to grow this business. I didn't appreciate the fact that we really owned a particular niche. I kept trying to find ways to to add ancillary products to our core product or to get into other vertical markets and, and do all these kind of things to actually grow the business. I was, I, was, I was trying to find ways to actually do that. And unfortunately, what wound up happening is uh, we took on debt, or I took on debt from my partner, do things like fund new software development. We actually made a big initiative to move into the RV industry, and we took on debt to do that, um, all believing that these things were going to help really grow the business. Well, in 2008, Lehman Brothers imploded. And we all know sort of the story after that. Um, you could imagine that my clients service people that own boats. Right. And unless unless you live on an island, you don't have to have a boat or unless you use it for commerce, like if you're a, sh- a shrimper or something, right? So my customers struggled mildly because they're basically servicing uh, units. That were discre- they were just discretionary spending only. The boating economy – really really scale back significantly so what i had to do as a business is we had to do the exact same thing right. so through the recession 2008 2009 we scaled back staff we had a, across the board salary cuts we actually made price concessions with our customers just to keep the business going again and would this actually forced me to niche down and to cut outside projects and start focusing on our core
0: let me interrupt you because before we get to this you know figure out what it happened from the turning point. I want to do a Cam Collins retrospective and and walk us back to the beginning. Um, to just give us an idea, when you guys took over the company, like those first few years, what was your about sales volume back then?
1: We were doing about between two and a half to three million. Well, about two and a half million in sales then.
0: And your staff count, your head count in Florida was
1: we had that that's kind of where the problem was we had we had probably about 28 people at that time and on top of that we had another five to eight consultants out of wisconsin okay so so the company wasn't even cash flow positive at that point in time
0: so what would you say to yourself what how would you do things differently because this is actually something that i see happen all the time and i think i make the mistake all the time as well which is that I think you get in this position where you're barking up the same tree, and you kind of think, "Well, if I could just be a little bit better, if I would just make the right decision, what would you, what would you advise yourself back then? What, what, did, what were you missing?"
1: Yeah, I, I know, I can hit that. I think pretty hard uh, right between the eyes. So. Uh- Couple things. We walked in the deal with rose-colored glasses, and we said, hmm, "Here's a company with all this, all these resources to build this product. Here's an industry that we believe uh, has a lot of growth potential." We had bought the company back in 2002, so the economy was on fire from 03 to 06 right? Mm-hmm. And there was quite a bit of growth. So we said, oh well, shoot, man. There's just one primary sales guy uh, in the business. We had a few sales guys, and we're you know we're we're doubling down on revenue. Right. <laughs> it, it was such a you know sort of a sort of a naive thought process. Now looking back at it, but back then you know we saw that as being being the issue. The other thing that was a problem was that the founders remained with the business. And that actually was relatively problematic. Uh, they, those guys did a really, really great job building the business to the level that it was. But in, in retrospect, we probably should have made a change there as well because they were able to do a pretty good job of continuing to control the business kind of under my nose without me really having a good sense about it.
0: So there's this there's this classic idea that a sales team is what's going to revolutionize a business rather than, I mean, was there a metric that you should have been looking at? It was it, Was it profitability?
1: Correct. We, we weren't looking at our profitability. We're looking at top-line revenue and spend whatever it takes to actually do some major product improvements. And I think in some ways, uh, the founders of the business actually saw us as, oh, here comes the cash cow, right. so they can now fund the spending uh, that they had in mind. I see a lot of and, small
0: businesses, they get here because, because, you know, as entrepreneurs, we're optimistic a lot of times, and mm-hmm. we, we, we get excited about capability and platform. And so people right. are willing to invest in those things, like look at all these machines and smart people and, and things that are happening. And, and I've been in that situation where I've looked at buying businesses and, and I have got caught up in that mindset as well. As I really can relate to that. I'm curious. You, s- you said that uh, the bonus incentives that they gave you didn't work in the favor of the business. Why is that the case?
1: Well, I think it was because uh, – we had to grow the business to actually it wasn't really it was was more it was the stock options the business actually had to grow for the stock options to uh to be realized and um so i was trying to figure out any way possible to grow the business the bonuses weren't in alignment with profitability or cash flow the bonuses Uh were in line in alignment with growth circa circa 19 uh, 2002 when the whole dot-com era and that whole, you know, all VCs cared about back then was, you know, top-line revenue, top-line revenue, you know, that was kind of the marching orders back then. Right. Um, as, long, as long as you had a big enough checkbook to, uh, to pay for the expenses, you know, just grow revenue.
0: So and this is what drove the company in the debt, basically. You're trying to solve the problem with cash. Correct. And you mentioned the economy crashes, you reach a turning point, you probably had a a, a horrific few months laying people off what did you think you were going to do at that point were you going to quit were you going to buy, you know go get a job uh- what was your idea mm-hmm. at that time?
1: The, my wife would have loved for me to, to have gone and gotten a job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, because believe me, I took the, the biggest salary cut of all. I mean, you know, we were sure. bare, barely barely making it, man. But, um, yeah, but laying off 25% of the staff and getting this company back to cash flow in, in the cash flow positive realm actually was a really, really fun challenge for me. It sucked, but it was fun at the same time because I knew in my heart that it was the right thing to do. I was determined to just go back to f- – focusing on that on our niche of uh, providing business management software to to marine businesses and not getting too far outside that that niche and just ourselves to cash flow to a cash flow positive state and it worked and we did it and we continued to operate in a positive cash flow wise through the sale of the business
0: so so what was the major turning point you mentioned i remember meeting you uh you were uh, we were both big fans of this week in startups you mentioned you went to Mm -hmm. jason calacanis's conference what kind of change did that trigger in you and i guess maybe you could draw a line to you know, why did you find your way to our community? What was appealing to you about this entrepreneurial movement and lifestyle business and stuff like that?
1: Perfect. Well, after um the recession and really niching down and saying, okay, now we've got a cash flow positive business. Now I can really pragmatically and thoughtfully Begin to look at growth again, look at growth opportunities. This whole notion of um, mobile was really, really starting to to resonate pretty loudly with me. So I felt like, um, you know, I, I looked at a lot of kind of the you know the regional more traditional business communities. I don't know if you're familiar with like tech or or Vistage. Um, You have YPO, and I had a lot of friends who were business people who were in these kind of regionalized groups, and I went to some of their meetings. I'm like, man, I said, you know. These these guys don't get me. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a software guy. We sell um, internationally, you know, all across North America for sure, as well as internationally. And these are very regional businesses. So I began to look online for technology masterminds and, 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 and tech groups that I could to be a part of. And this week in startups was the one that really kind of uh, brought me in initially. So I uh, joined Jason's group. Uh, I actually was one of the one of the, the original members of, of his group. I always wondered and, about um, that. <laughs> <laughs> the founders it was list right kinda, it, yeah it was weird though it's very very different than D, in the dc and i'll segue in a minute but um the group that he started even though i met some wonderful people in that organization i still have communications with them um it was kind of more to help him make his show better
0: so it wasn't until going to the launch conference that you you felt like I need to take this desktop software and put it onto the mobile devices for my customers.
1: Yeah, you bet. Uh, we had already had an initiative in place to move to the cloud. That was already happening. And And the cloud's great, and we have that now. It's wonderful. But still, I felt like there needed to be a different user experience, a different footprint for mobile. It was really, for lack of a better word, a dumbed-down version of our full-blown desktop app.
0: So you're starting to feel inspired. Why... Why did you want to sell the business? Tell well, me, so, so well, tell cool. me about this because this is just to remind users or the listeners you sell you sold the business or you sold a big portion of the business, right. something that nine out of ten of us want to do someday. And when did you start to think about that?
1: I'll walk through kind of that whole thing here for a bit because it really dovetails nicely into the, my whole kind of uh, aha moment of mobile. So um, I began, began cash flow strapped company i did not want to bother my dev team at all at that time we actually had three full-time developers i'm like i'm not going to bother my dev guys at all on this mobile initiative now keep in mind i hadn't done software development in like 15 to 20 years Mm -hmm. but uh I was determined on my own to actually build a minimum viable product uh, for 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 um for the marine industry. So I actually did it. I mean, it, it was a it was a web app. It was not a true mobile app, but I wanted to prove out MVP and I wanted to prove out um, lean startup and actually start showing this MVP to my customers. And they were like, "That's really cool. Yeah, I could see how we could use it at our marina or at our dealership, at our boatyard." So it kind of began to form. A life of its own. And what happened was I thought this migration to mobile was going to be a big cash cow for the company. I thought we were going to be bringing in all this new revenue. And something actually very, very different happened. Because I began to blog about these mobile apps that we were building. I did it very out in the open as opposed to doing it um, sort of as a works project in a back office. And I, every iteration of the app, I pushed to our blog. I pushed to our blog. And I started being kind of known in the industry as the mobile guy. You know, And it's like, hey, we need to have Cam Collins come speak about mobile at this industry event or that industry event and so on and so forth. And that kind of led me to the company that wound up actually buying our firm. Now, a, a couple things, Dan, are happening all at the same time here. My partner and I actually had had a meeting with uh, the team at the end of uh, the year. This actually, actually now over over a year ago. And coming to the realization that it probably made sense for us to, to, use, to, to sell the business. So we did start to work through a, a formalized process of selling the company. Um, but what happened in that whole process is the the, the the traditional potential suitors showed up. You know, our competitors started showing up and said, "Yeah, well, sure, you know, I'll buy the company and that kind of thing." And I and I wasn't, or we weren't thinking strategic about the next buyer. And I want, I don't Jump, jump too far ahead here but i mean that's the because of my mobile initiative and the vision i started outlining for the company that's what finally led us to this strategic buyer
0: so it was the blogging
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, have, I haven't done a podcast yet but i'm sure if, if i would have taken your advice done a podcast i could have doubled down on the on the cash input
0: <laughs> you know when you told you told your team that you were going to sell the business right or no it
1: wasn't until we we're pretty far down the road okay. yeah we didn't uh, we didn't feel comfortable about that until we actually had an loi okay
0: and when the i'm curious about the team issues and you know how they respond to that but um when your competitors come knocking what do you tell them i mean do they know everything about you already or i mean at what point do they sneak their way into due diligence you know did, did you tell That's them anything question. about what you're doing
1: well, let's, let's kind of walk through that because I think it's really important to anybody else thinking about selling their business. So we'll start kind of diving into that a bit. There's, we, we have one competitor in our market. It's actually a, a billion-dollar software company who owns literally hundreds of companies like, like ours. And they buy companies like ours, and, and they prop them up, and they turn them into cash cows. It's quite a successful business that they've got. So they've been knocking on our door a lot. Like, like over the years, they've been knocking on our door. So, so why that's aren't you why just what, swimming
0: in their money right now?
1: What? Well, because because cause, cause the money wasn't so great, and here's wow. kind of the thing: it, it was strategic. It was like, hey, let's pull you in, and we're just gonna—I don't want to say—you know—milk your product to death. But 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 that you know, there wasn't really a real growth strategic vision there. And, you know, kind of in my opinion, it's like you, know, you will be one of you know ten other companies that we own. that's just, that's just like you.
0: So let me right? let me let's make a distinction then for the audience is that a strategic buyer would be different from how would you say it like a cash flow or an ebitda buyer yes uh, someone exactly who wants to right. buy a company to to make 3x so they're going to kind of run the the table and say well we think exumatech is going to exist five years from now so we'll get a return um, whereas a strategic buyer would say man if if exumatech was a part of our business we would you know be 20x and that's exactly. part of the reason why the, the guys in the early 2000s they weren't idiots like you know, companies sold for revenue because people were doing strategic mergers. Um, oh, sure. Right. So so that's something that I just recently
1: learned, so I just wanted to outline that. So don't let me interrupt you. No, it's cool. I mean, you're, you're heading down the right direction. So, you know, a, a lot of us have seen this term goodwill on our balance sheet. Well, <laughs> what does that mean? It's not really tangible. It's, it's kind of the intangible component of a business. And if you find a buyer that really sees a, a, a huge upside to that goodwill and or that intangible, you have a strategic buyer, right. but if someone's just looking at, you know, okay, you know, we're we're going to give you multiple of of your EBITDA, and um, you know, it, it's it's that's a whole different kind of thought process in terms of why they want you. They're buying your cash flow and your cash flow only.
0: Do you feel like um, the 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 initiative to document and do the work, the system book, you know, you had a really compelling story of how you resonated with Sam's story and. And how you implemented it in your business, and, and part of that was that you got to do all this other fun stuff. Do you think that changed the the sales process at all?
1: I think it did a little bit. It really made the due diligence a lot easier. Um, so, as anybody's thinking about kind of going through this process, there's three main components. Typically, you sign a letter of intent, and then you go through a due diligence process where the buyer gets to look at everything they want to about your business, and it can feel uncomfortable. Uh, and that eventually gets you into uh, an asset purchase agreement. Most companies buy, buy the company's assets and they don't actually buy the company's stock. so they don't they, they, they don't take on the company's liabilities, just yeah. the assets. But, but yeah, if you have a really, really well documented process, it makes that due diligence process just so much easier.
0: Were you trying to create competition in your buyers? So when you know someone's looking at everything you're doing, are you letting them know that, hey, somebody else is doing the same thing and they're gonna give us an asset purchase agreement too, or they're gonna give us a, or when you get an LOI from someone, do they get sort of a few weeks by themselves? You
1: bet you, you create competition. That, that is, that is the whole, <laughs> that's kind of the whole game. Before we decided to actually sell the business on our own, we actually talked to a number of, uh, we, we, we didn't really talk to business brokers that much. We really didn't want to talk to a quote unquote broker in the United Are States. Are they completely
0: uh, worthless? This is, no. what's the I story? I don't think so.
1: I yeah, mean, is that so the first phone
0: call you make? Like how do you generate interest? How do you I mean, yeah, let people know that your business is for sale? Because it's not like you can sure. go down to the supermarket and look at all the
1: businesses for sale. <laughs> so, 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 so here, here's kind of the pitch, right? So, you have at one end of the spectrum, you have business brokers, which you actually, you in, in, in certainly in the state of Florida, I think, and all throughout the U.S., you actually get a real estate license to be able to sell businesses, all right? At the other end of the spectrum, you have Goldman Sachs, which is true M and A strategic deals. You know, they're they're going to try to find a a buyer for twitter so and there's everything kind of in the middle what you want to do if you have a business that's doing um you know multiple millions of dollars a year in sales is uh you want to find a company and or on your own run an MA process and an MA process means you actually go out there you create an offering memorandum an offering letter and then that behind that, you actually build out an offering book, which is a relatively detailed document that talks about your business. Ours is about 30 pages long. Financials, strategic um, rationale for uh, why we see growth in the future, forecasts, that kind of stuff. And then you would hire an M&A firm to actually shop your your offering memorandum to a whole bunch of companies. All right, and so their pitch us back up for a second. What's uh, this
0: document called and at what level is it relevant? So you're saying multi-millions or is this something that if you had a half a million dollar a year profit business, would you do it?
1: Oh, have your, your profit business you can definitely run this process with a half a million dollar profit business and what's I, the document the, called so you so you really have two you have one that's really kind of it's it's, it's just sort of a, you can call it various things um a lot of people just call it the offering memorandum but it's really just kind of a business summary very high level couple of pages business summary now you do not give that to anybody typically until they're ready to sign an NDA with you okay. so you call companies up hey we're looking we're, we're, we're looking for a strategic partner <laughs> you never sell it you never say i'm selling my business we're looking for a strategic partner now um, why, why don't
0: you say you're selling your business
1: well i mean you know it's kind of sounds like hey man you know the business you know we're, we're on the market we're trying to, trying to unload this thing i mean you're because we were going to entertain not just someone to come and buy the business outright we would have entertained someone Someone coming in and saying, "Hey, look, you know, we want to invest a couple million dollars in the business for um, X percentage ownership. Uh, you guys as owners stay in, and we're going to go build this thing together."
0: Well, you know, we this were is, open. This, to- this is interesting because is do you think it's true that the best deals never hit the street or never hit the brokers? Because, you know, w- when I look through the listings of the brokers, I do not see good fundamentals. I see uh-huh. people with that quote, "I'm selling my business," like I'm. You know, about ready to retire. I've pretty much baked myself into this thing. I'm really hoping one of you guys picked this this thing up. (laughs) I don't know if Cam Collins' business ever gets to that guy, does it?
1: I don't think that that's really a good route. I'll be very, very honest with you. We came very close to pulling the trigger on what we call a quasi M&A company. There's a handful of them out there. What they are is they're they're kind of basically business brokers, but they run an M&A process. And what that means is they go out to not just I mean, you and I can go find our competitors. What we don't have access to are private equity groups and companies that are kind of formulated around one or two or three or let's say five families or, or investors that are actually out buying companies and they hire a firm to go buy companies for them, you know, the DuPonts. I don't know who it could Um, you and I would typically not have access to a lot of those kinds of folks so someone who's going to come in and say hey look I'm going to run your business through an M&A process yeah you know all your competitors and blah 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 and they're going to buy you for EBITDA but we know strategic buyers and we're going to put your company in front of private equity firms and blah 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 now through my partner we happen to also have some of those contacts matter of fact we actually had one private equity company looking at us uh, because they owned a company similar to us and they actually were going to take a run and decide to pass uh, but we had them under NDA, and we had a few companies that are not "quote unquote" competitors under NDA looking at the deal.
0: So, can you help me visualize this? Because so, if you own Dockmaster, if I'm Marina Master, I absolutely know why I'd want to buy your company. What's an example of of a strategic buyer? Like, could you explain sort of the the people who bought your company? Why did they want it? What was the strategic interest for them?
1: Yeah, it, 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 that, that's actually a fantastic fit, and it's a great sense for, for a strategic buyer. So, um, this company, uh, My villages uh, the CEO and founder is a guy named Kevin Hutchinson, uh, who is now my partner in our going forward here with My Villages, He actually had approached us because they actually wanted to do a partnership with us. Kevin's a very entrepreneurial guy, and uh, they have uh, the, the, his his vision is to completely reinvent or change how people manage expensive assets. Uh, They want to help people through mobile apps and and a web app manage expensive assets like airplanes, motorcycles, RVs, boats, HVAC, home services, all these things that require a fair amount of maintenance to manage wants to completely revolutionize and disrupt those industries and and the vision is just so I'm so excited about it so he said hmm one, and he's had a couple of very successful startups in the healthcare industry already so um, yeah, he's the real deal and um, he, he saw the marine industry as a place that uh, was right for disruption. Um, no real new technology that was well funded had been into the industry yet. So he was actually going around and developing partnerships with with companies like mine and the other players in the business. So as he and I started talking more, I'm going through this whole M&A process. And we're talking to our competitors and these different private equity groups and trying to find a buyer, and I'm sitting there having beers with Kevin, and he's telling me about his history and healthcare and so on and so forth, and and. and this was one of those things where I just said, Kevin, let's just buy us.
0: <laughs> All right. Now, now, now let, me, let me just jump into this beer <laughs> conversation here because yeah. you're saying, you know, Marina Master, they're going to – if you're lucky, give you 4X EBITDA or whatever. But now right. you're having beers with this guy who's really awesome and you're going to say, you know what you should do? You should overpay for my company. How do you, here's, how do you here's make why. that happen?
1: Because we, we, we established the strategic synergy before I, I, I put it out there. We established the fact that he uh, – My Villages is primarily a consumer product. The boating industry is the first industry that uh, My Villages wants to go into prior to being able to roll up to a whole bunch of other, uh, other markets. So My Villages would love to have access to boaters. And – my company, the prior company, uh, the Dockmaster product, is the management system for a large number of marinas, boatyards, and boat dealerships across North America. Most specifically, boatyards and service centers. And the My Villages product specifically helps people maintain and manage their boats. And they also have a professional version it's called the boat village by the way that is used by the service technicians so we began to craft out this kind of vision of man if we could take the front end technology and tie it to the dock back end technology
0: so so you've got an eight point checklist of lessons learned from selling your company and you just reminded me of one i want to preface your list with before we run down through these is that there's probably somebody in the world out there who can monetize your list, your relationships better than you can. You and bet. that's that's an opportunity. And in fact that's why we started Valet Up because we knew software we knew our customers needed software and we were just these bozos sending them steel. And so we started getting on the phone with all these people and say, you know We have these relationships, but we're not giving them the highest value products we could be giving them. And that's part of the reason why we we wanted to get into software, but enough about Valet Up. Let's talk about the eight lessons you learned. The first one we talked about, find a strategic buyer. This person that we are just talking about, the person that can monetize your list at a whole nother level, not just the competitor who wants to absorb you and and eke out the profit.
1: You're absolutely right. Um, If you remember uh, in in Berlin, Dan Taylor was talking about your first offer is always going to be your best because if that same company offers you a deal again that's going to be lower than than the first offer, he was absolutely right. Why? And uh, at at least I found that... Because because he was talking about, in my personal opinion, a buyer that was looking at EBITDA, and they didn't see a real strategic uh, upside to buying the company. So they're looking at numbers. They're crunching numbers. And as time goes by, the value that they put in your business uh, decreases. Um, so the idea you know, is like
0: got- you want to find like the, the business to which your business is like a chemical reaction and, and they just absolutely yep. shoot up rather than, you know, this makes sense and we can put your QuickBooks into our QuickBooks.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, and, and strategic buyer goes both ways. You know, you also need to find a, a strategic seller. So in other words, for us on the DocMaster side, there is huge upside to the technical experts. The management expertise uh, and Kevin's uh, fundraising and, and uh, abilities, as well as his vision, you know, we had seen for a long time that getting access to the boater was where the real win was going to be for Dockmaster. I alone, though, with having to remain cash flow positive with our sort of uh, meager, you know, means, so to speak, just could not m- make that vision a reality without a partner like Kevin
0: point number two use earnouts to bolster the deal size now this gives me goose pimples for a couple reasons number one it's it's risky right like i'm concerned about whether you know this business is going to succeed or something bad happens like 2008 number two i'm concerned you know are you worried about losing motivation as you know well been there done that entrepreneurs new shiny thing want to do the next thing so it's a double-edged sword how do you deal with that and But if you could just start by saying, why does this bolster the deal size so much?
1: Well, there's a risk element to anything, right? So the buyer is going to look at this deal and say, OK, I'm willing to put, you know, here, here, here's the total value of the deal. I'm willing to put uh, 75% of that money at risk right now. But 25% of it, I'm going to hold back to ensure that there's no horrible skeletons in the closet. So that after I buy this company, the, the company just kind of falls on its face. So I'm going to hold that money back to ensure the company can continue to perform going forward.
0: Now, now, now Dan Taylor in Berlin basically said, deal with it. That's how this stuff goes. That's almost like a natural human nature thing, that they're not going to want to give you all the cash up front for something so big.
1: Exactly. But the key to this whole thing, in my opinion, is coming up with earnouts that are win-win. Um, in our case, Count and his team, they were very realistic about the earnouts that they wanted to put in place. They—they they, they the, the, the earnouts are a really positive thing to the merged entity going forward. Making them makes us all better. Missing them actually makes us all, um, all worse, so to speak. So uh, they were a true win-win for everybody. And they also weren't these crazy stretch goals either. They were things right. that we were going to do anyway if we hadn't sold the business.
0: Number three, help the buyer justify the purchase. So, what are, you, what are you doing? Are you giving them slide deck? And once you get the slide deck, don't you feel tempted to go on tour and give the same thing to 10 other companies?
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if there were 10 other companies that were anything like My Villages, maybe I would have done that. But but no, I mean, yeah, it, this is that whole idea of this happened actually before I said, hey, Kevin, maybe we should all these companies together because we started together kind of justifying why this could be so huge with one another. And it's really, you know what it is? It's really. Not being uh, not being afraid of talking about your intangible value, talking about the goodwill that your company brings to the table. I mean, you and Ian could discuss EBITDA and revenues all day long, you know. But what are some of those intangibles? Like you just said, leveraging the list and the, the power of your audience and those kinds of things. Those mean something to somebody. They mean a lot more to p- possibly buyer A than buyer B, right? I, and, th- and that's what I'm talking about.
0: I love that. And and you know what. I've been thinking a lot about this, Cam. You get to own that, you know, and you own it better than anybody else. So if I know that, you know, I've got X list and X industry and I'm just not selling them all this stuff that they could be sold to, uh-huh. you get to own that information. They don't get to tell you what that's worth. And so I think if you can lay out a business case for what's that's that's exciting to me. I get pumped up about that a little bit. I got, I got fired other thing up when too, I just,
1: you know in due diligence now the buyer's going to go talk to your customers. You're going to say, oh man, our customers love us. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. Let's go find out. And you know, and so it, it kind of goes both ways. You have to really it's got to be for real.
0: Absolutely. So number four, mm-hmm.
1: get professional legal representation.
0: <laughs> How do you do this? Because lawyers, I just feel like man, every time I pick up the phone, I can hear the money just hitting the floor.
1: This is a struggle, man. You know, we especially as entrepreneurs and bootstrappers. I mean, we're doing everything we can to, to to just you know have a dollar go as long as we possibly can make it go. And I was really resist even even running the business. I was resistant to this. You know, like, I'm going to review my own contracts and blah, blah blah as much as I possibly could. But when it came to this particular deal, when it comes to doing a deal as strategic as selling your business, my advice is get the best you possibly can, and it's going to hurt. Because you know, in our case, we're talking you know four hundred dollar an hour plus people, <laughs> <laughs> law firms, right? And, and and what's crazy about it, man, is the seller has their law firm, the buyer has their law firm, and then on our side, the seller side, there was a law firm representing the company and a law firm representing me. And we'll get to this in a bit, but. You know, I was pretty strategic to this deal, and I was going to be negotiating a, a you know a, a stock agreement, ownership of the company. I was going to be negotiating an employment agreement, and the attorney represented our company said, "Look, I got a conflict here. I can't represent you and the company at the same time." So in comes yet another law firm wow. to represent me personally. Well,
0: that's kind of baller.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we, we we had to do it, man. You know, and it's and it's tough, and 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 the uh, the fees for those attorneys they they came out of the proceeds. of the deal, you know. So it kind of hurts because it, it just comes right off the top.
0: Number five, speed is everything. You know, these are really. It's amazing how in such a big deal. I've been involved in a few big deals and how the small little things can impact them. Even a little emotional interaction could change a whole big deal. How do you accelerate the speed without screwing things up?
1: Yeah, tough. Um, Your attorneys are going to make sure you don't screw things up. So in my opinion, the business guys people need to move as fast as they possibly can your attorneys aren't good attorneys are not going to let you just do something overt do something that's going to be a complete omission that's going to kind of hose you in the end so a lot of this is all about my whole thing with this is you need to make yes no decisions very very quickly or you need to get to a yes or no as fast as you possibly can so um is this a strategic buyer yes or no are they offering the right amount of money they were willing to sell yes or no and my whole my whole premise here is wasting too much time and maybe typically yeah. leads to a no. And then now you're just, you're just delaying the next company that's willing to come along and say yes to you..
0: I love that. Number six, uh, you are the deal. What does that mean? That does that sounds dangerous. So, that sounds like the opposite of 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 uh, growing a scalable company and doing work the system and all this kind of stuff. What does that mean?
1: It depends it depends whether what your what your interest or intent is here. my intent was I wanted to find what what I considered a strategic buyer that I could go join up and partner with and actually take my company to the next level. I still consider this my company Kevin's my partner in here you know both very much in sync with that. On the other hand, if you really want to sell your business and you want to just walk away from it or if you want to sell off an asset, a portion of your business, then this is obviously not important at all or has far less importance. But for me, part of the value of the business was my relationships with the customers and my ability to help the merge company grow. So as I was looking for a strategic buyer, I had to assess really, really quickly how much value they put in me.
0: Number seven, fight for your value. So this is what we're talking about at, at the beer bar when <laughs> everybody's all friendly, but now you right. come in and you drop the number on the table. Um, yeah. Were they taken aback? How did it go back and forth? How do you negotiate these things?
1: Well, so here's, here's – we're going to kind of circle back to attorneys again. If I did not have an attorney representing me, it probably wouldn't have gone that well. You know, but an attorney who represents you and, and your interests only are, is going to help you see through a lot of the things that, that you're not seeing right. A, a, creating an employment agreement uh, that really works for you, an incentive package, stock option package. Uh, one of the things I was able to do with this deal – this is something that I threw out there. This is, this is because of you and the D.C. – is uh, I wanted to uh, – I wanted a mini retirement of this. So I actually put that mm-hmm. in my deal that I wanted a one month sabbatical, paid sabbatical as part of the deal. And you have to assess those things quickly in terms of what, what you want and just and ask for them. But you have kind of the attorney as the heavy who's pushing it uh, on that end as well.
0: And finally, number eight, be the linchpin. I think it's, as we look at a lot of this, I mean, we just sold our first business a few months ago. It's very easy to think that everybody knows better than you because right. and and to kind of sit in the back seat in the most important thing that's going on and it sounds like what you did was you had a lot of confidence in this, and you stepped up and you made sure it got done. Right.
1: In, in this case, you know, because I I, I was partnering with uh, the buyer, but I was also with the seller at the same time. I played a really really unique role here, right, as kind of the person in the middle. One of the very first yes nos I had to ask myself is, can I establish trust uh, early with this with this buyer? Is this buyer is going to be my partner. The answer, of course, was yes, and so I was able to actually help keep the transaction uh, on the tracks because you know. I became you know really excited about the opportunity going forward. So that's awesome. Yeah, well, man.
0: Well, Cam, thanks for so much for coming on the show and and sharing your experience. I'm sure people are going to have a lot of questions for you. So I'll have all your contact uh, info at the blog. What's next for you? You know, now you uh, you know this, is a, with, this yeah, is a big turning point. This is a big turning
1: point. How's the company going to change? How's your life going to change? You know, what's next? Yeah. You know, it's cool, man. My life's actually not going to change that much with the exception of the fact that now I really feel like I have something that I can help grow and really take to the next next level. I haven't been in a position where I feel like I could disrupt anything or or make a dent in the universe in a long time, and now I feel like I do. I really feel like I I can truly change uh, something uh, for the better. So I'm excited to be a part of this thing and just help, help see this thing grow.
0: Well, congratulations, Cam, and uh, thanks yeah, for man. sharing your story as always, and I'll look forward to the podcast. All right, Dan. Yeah, man, me
1: too. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate your time, man. Cheers.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. If you'd like to see the links to everything we talked about in this episode, check out tropicalmba.com slash boat. That's a pretty funny one. Tropicalmba.com slash boat. Thank you for listening. We'll see you all next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.